Hey, welcome to Reflection as a Service. This is Paul Merrill, your host, and I'm joined by... James Jeffers. And we're here to talk about software development and entrepreneurship. And tonight, we're going to focus on the software development portion of this, James. Um, and we are really, really lucky. We've got Andy Hunt, one of the original authors of the Agile Manifesto, who I'll have join us here in just a minute, joining us. So we get to ask him all kinds of questions about how that happened. How's your week been? Uh, the week's been uh, pretty good. Um, it's getting that time of year where you realize there's not actually that many working days left before the end of the year, right? No, especially when by the time this comes out. Right. Fact, it, it could be 2017 by the time this comes out, so you never know, right? Yeah. 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 So everything, I think like all the projects, I've actually had to tell a couple people, like, I don't have any more time until uh-huh. the next year. Uh, and that kind of like immediately set a little alarm bell in my head that said, hey, that's right. Like, it's the end of the year. It'll be here before you know it, like Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be here in no time. I'm having the same thing with people going into budgeting season or getting done with the budget and all that kind of stuff. So, absolutely. Well, what do you say we get this thing kicked off here? Um, I'll, Andy wrote his first commercial program in 1981. He taught himself Unix and C and began to design and architect larger, more connected systems. Andy joined up with Dave Thomas, and they wrote the seminal software development book, The Pragmatic Programmer, followed a year later by the original Programming Ruby, The Pragmatic Programmer's Guide. They founded the Pragmatic Bookshelf, published in publishing business in 2003, helping keep developers at the top of their game. Andy is a founder of the Pragmatic Programmers, founder of Agile Alliance, and one of the 17 authors of the Agile Manifesto, and author of nine books. He is an active musician and woodworker and continues looking for new areas where he can stir things up. Andy, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Glad to be here. This is awesome. I was thinking earlier today, I was like, you know, there are these points in life where you're like, oh, I have kids and I have a family and it can't get any better. And then Andy Hunt comes on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be placed on the high shelf. <laughs> Up there somewhere. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you know, we want to get to all of this and learn all about you and, and, and all this. I know for myself that the Agile Manifesto is something that I went back today and read it again. I read it quite often. I looked at the 12 principles again. And I, I, every time I see it, I have this thought. And that is, it has this background on the webpage when you go to agilemanifesto.org. And the background is these, these not quite silhouetted figures standing around a whiteboard or something like that talking. And I'm just wondering, what, was that really what was going on? Like, were you all in the same room? Is the background something that you drew up? What, what was that? Yes, 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 indeed. Um, that's an actual photograph. It wasn't a, a painting or a, a pastel or anything. Um, and uh, if I remember right, Ward Cunningham treated it to use as the background on the original website on agilemanifesto.org. Uh, and if you go from the left, you can see that's uh, Dave Thomas in silhouette. I'm standing next to him with a white shirt. That's the back of my head. Uh, Bob Martin is to my right. And yes, you can see Martin Fowler up at the board with his distinctive uh, beard. Uh, and then to the right, we've got um, at least Ron Jeffries, I can see there in the white shirt. And I can't really tell who the two are right in front of the, uh, the camera. But that was, you know, all 17 of us were there, mostly piled in one, one large conference room um, with whiteboards and, you know, those big uh, uh, 3M poster sticky, sticky note things up on the walls and 
Uh, you know, all, all the consultant tools of the trade, you know, little dots <laughs> and whiteboard markers did and you, sticky notes. Did and, you make quadrants as you were going through this? <laughs> not close, pretty close. Um, there was there was some drawing and, and, and some stuff like that. Um, so what happened was when we got together um, for this thing, it, th- there were a bunch of these sort of consultant summits, get-togethers, things happening about around this time. I'd, I'd been, I think overall I'd probably been to, I don't know, a half dozen or a dozen of them over the years in, in various topic areas. Some small, just a handful of people, uh, some larger ones, some famous ones like, like this one. Um, th- this by far was, you know, uh, had a much greater impact than any of these other little sort of get-togethers. Um, but we all flew out on, you know, everyone's own dime just, just to get together and just to talk about these things because the, the idea of lightweight methods was picking up steam at the time. Um, Kent Beck was just finishing up his first extreme programming book. You know, the scrum guys had been scrumming, um, for a while. They'd been doing their thing. Um, Agile, uh, uh, Alistair Coburn had uh, a couple books on surviving old projects and the like, which started to get into the idea of, you know, how do you, how do you just even survive a modern project, uh, you know, at the time? And he was starting to develop those ideas into his, um, uh, his methods. So, and Dave and I had written the Pragmatic Programmer book, um, trying to help just your average normal team be more effective and, and get through the day. Um, and for us, that, that was, that was kind of, I, I got to back up a little bit, um, before 2001 when the, when the Agile Summit was, um, Dave and I had been consulting at the time. So out there in the field, you know, getting our, our fingers dirty, writing code, cutting code for folks, helping teams, um, be more effective, do their, do their thing. And the interesting thing that we noticed was that we would go into client after client and they'd be doing the same thing wrong every time. And so purely as a sort of defensive measure, like, okay, this is getting a little wearisome going in, doing the the consultant song and dance, telling them the same little anecdotes, the same little stories, the same pithy, you know, little quotes. Uh, So we figured, okay, we'll just write like a white paper you know, 30 pages, maybe something on that order and ship it on ahead before a consulting engagement so that the, the local team could at least sort of get up to speed, know what we'd be expecting or we'd be talking about um, at, just to ease our work when, once we got there. That was the idea. And um, as happens, <laughs> right, never happens with software projects, right? There was a little scope creep. Um, <laughs> involved and it became a, a, a larger uh, work and the funny thing was so so we, we were, were sort of writing this and, and working on this book and weren't sure what to do about uh, having a publisher we really knew nothing about this we were a couple of programmers a couple of consultants we didn't know anything about writing or typesetting or publishing you know none of these topics and uh, my actual uh, one of my brother-in-laws at the time uh, who was was learning to write, trying to write um, in his field, said, well, what you do is go to your bookshelf. You know, back when we had physical bookshelves back in the day, <laughs> when dinosaurs grazed under the window, you know, 
uh, is to look at your bookshelf of your 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 tech books in in your field and look at what publisher you have the most books of and approach them. Yeah. Go right to the top. And so for us at the time that was easy. It was Addison Wesley. Yeah. All our books at the time were Addison Wesley. You know, we had the you know Gamma Gamma uh, uh, Patterns book, um, all these other you know um, interesting seminal books at the time. So we're like, okay, start at the top. You know, there, there was no lean pub in the day. There was none of, you know, no Amazon, no Amazon. You know, none of this stuff was around. Um, self-publishing options. So we approached Addison Wesley with a, with a short proposal and said, we want to write this book on sort of tips for programmers. And to our enduring shock and surprise, they said, yes, sign here. <laughs> Just like that. I'm like, well, that's not supposed to. That's not supposed to go that way, really. But I mean, okay, cool, fine. Um, and, and it turned, it you know, turned out really to be a a. I have to say, it's a it's a great book. I mean, I go back and look at it. I'm like, wow, you know, stuff that you know, even today, people are sort of discovering or rediscovering for the first time, or finally coming around to. And it's like, yeah, we said that. <laughs> You know, 15, 16 years ago uh, uh, when we wrote the book. This, this is, you know, what's old is new again. So it is, you know, despite being, um, we, we actually wrote it in, I guess, 98. Uh, and it was published in the fall of 99. Uh, I think it has a 2000 copyright date. But it was basically late, uh, you know, all of 1998 we took off from our consulting work and just spent full time uh, working on the book. Wow. And Literally, I mean, Dave and I would argue in a constructive and friendly way over literally every word choice. Oh my goodness! The connotation of every word, uh, every you know, does this sentence need to be in there? Can can we pull it out? Can we distill this down? Can we make it more concise? Can we make it more focused? So it really was a um, uh, sort of more work than one would expect to put into. Uh, to, to such a thing um uh, not like my writing now i just slap crap out now on the page <laughs> like hey that's good yeah let it rip um and it's fine um it, it's good well because I've, I've i've been in the habit of it now for 15 years right, so right you learned you know, how to write now it's if, easy. Yeah, yeah and that's and that doesn't that doesn't come overnight um so we really we really slaved over it um and in the process one of the things we discovered about working with a a uh, mainstream publisher like an Addison Wesley uh, or any of the others at the time, the way their workflow went, you would prepare your manuscript using whatever technology you had. You could you could be chiseling it on cuneiform tablets <laughs> and pressing it in the wet sand. They did whatever. They didn't care. You'd hand them the tablets and they would send it off and have some, you know, poor schmucks in some uh, lower cost venue re-key, retype the entire thing oh my word. into whatever they used at the time, FrameMaker or um, uh, you know, you know, something of that of that nature. So they would retype it from scratch, which is moderately okay if you're doing you know a fiction title or prose or something like that. When you've got a highly technical book with code okay. samples, and we had code in I don't know a dozen different languages in Pragmatic Programmer. I mean, we really tried to not make it a Java book or a C++ book or uh, a Perl book. There was no Ruby at the time. That that was you know, a year or two later. Um, but, we, you know, there was, so was a lot of this stuff. So we figured, okay, given all the horror stories we've heard from 
people who had their books mangled by someone else retyping it, we will typeset it ourselves. And I know, and he's, you all can't see this, but I'm looking at the screen. He just made a face, and rightfully so. I don't, I don't um, know anything about it, but it sounds terrifying. We, we didn't either, um, particularly. <laughs> um, uh, we, I mean, we both, we, so the first, the first couple versions of the book, we actually did using TROF, the old Unix standard, because um, I, I knew TROF pretty well. I, uh, you know, everyone used NROF for man pages um, back in the day. So it wasn't much of a stretch, and we were able to do that. Um, but we quickly discovered that for professional publication, TROF had some limits. And we were starting to run up against some of the limits there. So we moved over to LaTeX, um, the, the tech typesetting system, which is phenomenally powerful it's it's you know the engine is probably it's 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 turing complete and probably close to sentience um <laughs> you know kind of like how emacs got in later years when it became skynet um you know j- just phenomenally complex um but you know we, we bit the bullet and, and 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 dealt with that and published the book and, and it was wonderful and so then um Skipping a little forward of the Agile Alliance, I'll come back to a second. By about 2003, the dot uh, bomb, the dot com bomb, uh, had gone off, and suddenly all these clients that we'd been dealing with had no money anymore. Mm-hmm. They'd spent it all on the volleyball courts and the foosball <laughs> tables, and I mean literally. I mean, our you know clients were like prime Dilbert candidates, um, you know, for for <laughs> misappropriating VC money. Uh, so we figured, well, we can write, you know, and we can we can typeset, um, and we can actually even index. When we went for both the Ruby book and the uh, Prague Prague book, and um, went to the indexer that, that the publisher had assigned us, and the indexer's first question was literally, "What words y'all want indexed?" Oh, oh, the, those type of indexes. Um, I see. So we're like, <laughs> okay, I th- I think we can. We, you, you know, we got this. We, we got <laughs> this. So, so by 2003, we're like, okay, we can write a book or two. We can typeset it. We can, and you can buy printing. You can buy copy editing. That's, you know, publishers don't own presses or any of those support services. It's, it's a cottage industry. So that's when we started the Pragmatic Bookshelf um, publishing business was based on, on that experience. Wow. So that was a long I don't even know what the question was that started that, <laughs> but that was that was kind of how Prague Prague came about. So at the time of the manifesto, so this was this was uh, February 2001. The world was still green and young, and um, we had uh, we had published the book. It had done phenomenally well out of the gate. It was in the top ten on Amazon when it first came out, and not top ten of computer books, top oh, wow. ten of all. Wow. So it was nestled in between John Grisham and Harry Frickin' Potter. And you hit um, it at just the right time. I mean, it was right at the top of the time. boom. Right at the very it top was, end yep. of the boom. Which served us well because then as as the bust came, people were sort of like, Oh God, I've gotta I've gotta up my skills. I've gotta I've gotta up my game. And that I think really helped propel it um, and keep it going in those early years. because um, we it, we saw Later in the publishing business, when the 08 crash came, I think our our best quarter, our best year ever in the publishing business was right after the crash. 
Yeah. Because fear, everyone's like, I have to level up. I need to know these new languages. You know, I missed out on the Rails thing. I missed out on Ruby. I need to know more about Agile, uh, Android, whatever, uh, you know, it might be at the time. Um, so, you know, a friend of mine once said, people never change when they see the light. They change when they feel the heat. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's funny. And it seems like that happens every economic cycle with, with technology. And I was talking to somebody recently about this. And they said, you know, no, no, nobody wears button-up shirts to work anymore. And nobody shaves to go to a programming job. And you can wear flip-flops. And it's, it, that's just the way it is now. And I'm like, that's the way it is today. <laughs> because there's no com- there's no competition for you. But the minute the economic tide starts to turn, these things do change because you have competition in the workforce. You have to go out and try to find a job. The jobs become scarce. And there's a premium the other way around instead of uh, on you. Yeah, that, and that absolutely changes. I mean, I remember my uh, my first job out of college was uh, working for the Death Star uh, at AT and T. They had just adopted the logo with the you know the roundy thing, and so of course everyone called it the Death Star because that's that was what it looked like um, and other reasons. But uh, they, we had a manager at the time, so it was you know a group of programmers, maybe uh, 25, 30 of us in the office, sort of thing, and um, our manager said because we were programmers. And we're not customer facing. We could actually dress casually in the office. To him, casually meant you could take your suit coat off right. and hang it on the <laughs> hanger behind the door. He was serious. We had to wear ties and white shirts, and you know the whole the whole deal. Now I could understand that when visiting a client. We did a lot of work for the New York Stock Exchange yeah. uh, and folks like that. And obviously, if you're going down to manhattan doing that kind of thing you have to dress the part that that's i had no problem with that but honestly when you're sitting in the office behind the terminal you know it's flip-flops if you're in the office and honestly if you're working at home it might not even be that so right Right, exactly i'm barefoot most of the time when i'm working from home i hear you well that is that's really cool i you know I, i keep thinking about this meeting that you're having and you've got the 17 folks that end up being the authors um, of this manifesto. And, and I just, I want to know these things. Like who was the hardest person to deal with? Like who, <laughs> what, what was the worst argument that you had? You know, what, what was it about? Because it, it looks so pretty and so concise and so obvious now. You know, well, it's these- not, but it's not, it's absolutely not. I mean, if you, if you look at the, if you look carefully at the wording in the manifesto, you can see some clues to those questions. Um, what are because, the clues? <laughs> so here's, so here's, here's one of my, my favorite ones. So, you know, the, the actual, the first couple stanzas on the front of the individuals and interactions and all that business that I actually found some notes on this the other day and that came together, I think, as I remember fairly easily, um, because most everyone had kind of the same ideas of what was important and the idea of interacting with people, um, you know, Alistair at one point had a phrase of people being first order components of, yeah, of a method. I like that. And that was a really important concept. And the idea that, you know, actual software that worked really trumped anything else. It trumped documentation and models and plans and, you know, because you could just sit there and fart around in analysis paralysis for years and not produce a single line of code. Yeah. And ironically, that's still the case. Uh, you interviewed um, Jared uh, previously, Jared Richardson, 
uh, my partner in the Groves um, Institute. And Jared actually has has a current client where they were in hard analysis for two years. They were kind of softly thinking about it for some number of years before that. <laughs> two years sitting there, literally farting around, not producing anything. Uh, and he got them on, you know, the, the sort of tracer bullet approach that we we recommended back in Pragmatic Programmer. And within six weeks, they actually had functioning code they could ship. Awesome. That's just so. Awesome. So you know, again, we're looking back. You know, it's two thousand one. We're saying individuals and interactions are more important than processes and tools. We're saying working software is more important than than other stuff. And these lessons are still slow to sink in. They're still hard for people to grasp. That first one. Individuals and interactions. I found an early version of that. Um, what, hang on one second here. I actually found my notebook from February 2001, where I'd actually taken, these were live notes from the meeting uh, in Snowbird, and I had a couple crossouts on here. So I had an earlier version of that, because we're all sitting around the whiteboard and, and bitching at each other and you know trying to pick words and that kind of thing. <laughs> And at least one version of it said individuals and social networks over processes. Oh, aren't you lucky that you didn't pick those words? Which, oh, yeah, got right. Yeah, because this was this predated um, Facebook, right. uh, clearly. But it was it's an interesting concept because clearly we were viewing the idea of personal interactions on a much grander scale than just me talking to you as another developer or me talking to the user That's or me talking to the to an executive it was about networks of people interacting and talking and the kind of network effects that that, that come from that so it was a it's the means the same thing when you say individuals and interactions but the connotation there is that that that's kind of more of a one-on-one thing and that wasn't the intent that I, was but a, i never would have thought of that no i sure. don't mean to interrupt you but there's no way that i ever would have thought that interaction individuals and interactions the way that that's written had anything to do with networks of people i absolutely, it, it absolutely looks like it's a face-to-face one-on-one type of thing yeah and and the, certainly the thought behind that was far more expansive than that because it is the it is the you know someone used to say and i i've i've been copying them for for decades that the important part of an OO program isn't the objects it's the relationships between the objects yeah it's the interactions between them that's what makes an OO program go and it's the same in a team it's the interactions between people you know that that, that makes it gel um not someone necessarily had their up, roles not necessarily their roles yeah, or responsibilities absolutely. but how they interact yeah how they interact and you know to the point where if you replace one member of a team you have a new team because you've changed the dynamic you've changed the interactions um that can occur there so that was you know there's a lot of that kind of thing where the the thinking that was involved at the time that everybody brought to the table you know we tried to distill it and condense it and make it as generic as we could to keep everyone uh, happy with their particular angle on it. And yeah, a few things got a little lost in the translation. Maybe I think that's a good example. Um, the idea that, um, you know, the two things right on the front page, right? Individuals and interactions over processes and tools. What is every conference? What is every <laughs> certificate? Pro- what is everything talk about is the damned, Processes and tools. 
right? Oh, we use Jira. We're agile. Right. You know. Right. Right. I mean, that's a direct quote, right? And <laughs> you know, I have nothing against Jira. It's a it's a tool. It's often a dangerous tool because it can hide information effectively. Uh-huh. Uh, we had a case where there was a, a a client who had just kept piling so many features and so much of a, of a backlog into Jira. They lost track of the fact that now they had basically like a 10 year project instead of a 10 week project. And, um, you know, we, we had the suggestion, uh, you know, Jared, this was someone Jared was working with, had the suggestion, well, go old school like XP, write it down on physical index cards and put them up on the wall. And after they had filled all four walls of the room, they came back and said, can we have another room? And I said, Ahem, uh, now is a good time to rethink your life choices. <laughs> um, but that's, that's that, to me, that's a really, really important. I mean, I love the anecdote. I'm, I'm, I'm glad Jared had that experience because it's, it's a brilliant anecdote to show that the, the physicality of the stuff that we deal with is really important because you can jam, you can open up a file and just jam in stuff till the cows come home. You know, it takes a long time to fill up a terabyte disk. Um, but if you're working with index cards, sticky notes, a whiteboard, something more representative in the physical space, it's much easier to understand your limitations and realize, whoa, maybe this is getting out of hand. You know, maybe this is more than we can chew. I think you're, I think that's such a good point. And you look back at some of the methodologies that came out around that time and they use physical things. You were talking about XP. And I remember, uh, it was 2002 when I joined my first XP team and I guess Kent's book had just come out. That's what we were looking at. I guess it was Kent and, um, I forget. I, I should know the other author, but I, I believe he had someone helping him out on that book, a co-author. Anyway, we were using that book and got into it. And I remember every morning on the whiteboard, we had everything drawn up for, for what we were going to look at, which tasks had to come up and which members of the team were, were doing what. And I think those physical cues are absolutely important. And it's interesting that you have together in that room when you're doing this 17 folks who each have probably about two decades of experience about where James and I are, are getting in our careers, right? Um, two decades of experience already writing software. And they've decided not to use a technology to do these things. Instead, they've decided to use something physical and, and, and something other than technology to do it. I think that says something. Well, I, I, you know, it's funny. I hadn't, I hadn't actually really consciously thought of that. But in the meeting itself, as we're collaborating and working with other, we're working with each other and hammering out the wording, hammering out our values, trying to figure out what we really believed. We didn't use a word document we didn't use a spreadsheet we didn't use there was no powerpoint i promise you yeah um it was it was very all very physical um you know i didn't i wish you know in hindsight had i known how this was going to play out and how insanely popular these ideas would become and become maligned but that's a story we'll get to in a moment um i would have t- i would have taken much better notes i would have given you know much better credit to oh so and so said this and so and so said that but that really wasn't the um the mood at the time we were we were just you know you had a bunch of people with occasionally very different outlooks on on the world trying to trying to discover what we believed in common and work together to try to promote that 
Hmm. Um, and you can, so so back to your your question from like days ago. Uh, you asked something about the, the personalities uh, and that kind of thing. So you can see some of the the chinks in the armor, some of the cracks in the in the foundation here. If you look on the um, the principles page, where we've got this real sort of mishmash of sentences at different levels of well, this is important, and this other thing's important, and yeah, this here too. Um, one of them, because I, I remember this was a big argument. The principal says, deliver working software frequently from a couple of weeks to a couple of months with a preference to the shorter time scale. <laughs> Does that not sound like committee speak to you? It's, it's like, like, how can you, how can, it's like reminds me of meeting in meetings at IBM where the object of the meeting was to come to a conclusion or a decision without actually having had anybody on record as having made a decision. <laughs> that's what that felt like. I, I think that's the, the worst example of it because there was, there was strong disagreement there. You know, the scrum folks were, were saying it needs to be exactly this, and the XP folks were saying it needs to be shorter than that. Some of the folks who were a little more old school, maybe a little more model oriented, were like, you know, six months is fine. That you know, it, it can go on for six months or a year. And the rest of them are like, oh, good God, are you insane? No, you can't possibly go that long. You know, we need to. Well, we need to give them something directive. We should just say something. We shouldn't. One of the issues with a document like this, with an approach like this, is you have to be aware of the kind of uh, cook until done advice. You know. I mean, oh, ideally, yeah. you know, really what you want to say is it depends. Yeah. The, right. the consultant's ultimate answer is it depends because it does. It's context sensitive. Um, so, you know, in a perfect world, I'd like to say, you know, as short as possible, you know, because this is a feedback loop. And obviously you want to get feedback as quickly as possible. So you want a short of, of an iteration for development, for deployment, um, as you can possibly stand. Well, that's a lot longer than, you know, <laughs> trying to fit into a, a single sentence here. So we have this little bit of committee speak of, yeah, make it really short. Don't go too long and, you know, try and, and, and that. Um, so there's, there's, there's some of that, which is, you know, really just a reflection of the different uh, approaches that everyone took. That's great. James, you want... Have you got questions? I do. And it actually has to be about the, the meeting itself. So, I mean, you, you guys all hop on an airplane, you fly out. Uh, what, did you spend the entire day, like, locked in a conference room? Did you? Oh, it was two days. Uh, it was two or three. Uh, actually, hang on. I think I can answer that question. Give me one second here, because I found, uh, and I probably have lost it again. I think I you actually should auction took... off that notebook, by the way. I think you should oh. take that notebook and auction it off. Should you put it at the awesome. site first? What's that? Like put it in like a lucite block. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like have to wear white gloves to hold it. Right. <laughs> uh, and again, I, I really wish I had uh, uh, been more generous with my note taking ability. <laughs> but um, I have a uh, I have a screenshot of the the television set, the CRT. You know, the tube television set, because that's what we had back then. Or as my son said at the time, what's all that stuff hanging off the back of the TV? Because <laughs> it's not the flat panel. Um, so, you know, the CRT there, it had the day's schedules, the day's events. Um, and it was billed as the Lightweight Methods Conference in the Aspen Room. And it's uh, the bo room was booked from 7.30 a.m. 
until until midnight, and we didn't use it the whole time. Uh, we were there for it was at least two days. It might have been officially two and a half days, but you know people had um, flights and stuff they had to uh, had yeah. to deal with. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was over a day, and you know we took we took some breaks. Some of the, the guys went there ostensibly really to take advantage of the skiing. Um, you know, in addition to this, um, I did not at the time. I hadn't I hadn't been skiing in years, and and I didn't think that was really an appropriate venue to start. Um, <laughs> you know, not not a cold start there. Um, I actually did start skiing again some a couple years after that, but uh, uh, then then really wasn't the time. So so there you know there was it wasn't like we were sitting in there locked in an airless room uh, you know the entire time and we did break up um, on occasion if if we would there were a few instances where like we're either stuck on something or there was something we wanted to work out in groups first and then come back and discuss so we broke up at least a couple times to kind of you know work on it in in smaller um, chunks. Uh, and then come back and 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 deal with it, and that included, you know, even figuring out that that, that a manifesto was even something we wanted to do, you know, that that had to be kind of decided on, and we we had talked about some of these things ahead of time. Um, somebody, I'm guessing it was Ward, set up a wiki, because um, because it's Ward, yeah. Um, yeah. you know. Uh, that we could was that, that we the C, could the C2 wiki or the... it, this was a separate one or it was, it was either pages hanging off of that I think it was a physically separate um, instance running somewhere because um, only we had access to it it was it was you know uh, just a, a thing um, but we'd use that to argue over where to meet um, and that was a, that was a big argument um, early on I I had no skin in that game I didn't I didn't particularly care. Um, there were uh, uh, factions that were arguing for someplace warm in the Caribbean, and I was I was absolutely down with that. That that would, <laughs> that would have been fine, um, but uh, you know that didn't didn't go that way. So okay, fine. You know, snow snow is nice too, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but uh, but so we had this wiki going, and I did I did find in my notebook that um, prior to the meeting, I did read up on. Some of the folks that I weren't, I wasn't as familiar with at the time. Um, you know, we had talked to we had talked to Kent um, um, and and Martin Fowler because because we knew them through our common publisher um, right. at the time. So we, we'd had contact with them, and uh, so I and I you know I was pretty pretty well familiar with XP. Um, I'd seen some stuff with Scrum. I didn't know much about what Alistair had been up to. Um, I'd read uh, some of his earlier books. Um, I really didn't know anything about Jim Highsmith at all. Um, and so I went and read, went and gotten some of his works and that was, I was really impressed with where Jim was coming from at the time. And one of the questions folks sometimes ask about the manifesto is, you know, what, what kind of ideas didn't make it in there or should have been more, uh, emphasized. And I think a lot of the things that, that Jim was talking about at the time, um, you know, he was a big proponent of sitting right on the edge of chaos and harnessing emergence. And he was a big fan of, of D Hawk's work at Visa at the time. And these kind of, you know, sort of higher level organizational, um, kinds of ideas, which, you know, quite a few filtered through and have, have become part of the, uh, part of the discussion, part of the lexicon. But I think there's a lot more there that maybe we've, kind of lost along the way and need to need to pick up again um 
which would you know I'm sure we'll get to that later. That's some of the stuff I was looking at with the with the Groves method was trying to go back and pick up some of the things we dropped, right? Um, you know, and and didn't didn't give as full attention to that maybe we should have. That is awesome. I I think I could sit here and just ask questions for hours on end, and maybe at some point there will be a chance where we can have uh, pints after pints and and do that. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I know I, why did I say pints? I don't live in England, right? <laughs> yeah, there's still it, just, it had that pub feel going to it. That's, you know, well, we, so yeah. And part of like preparing and, you know, doing our homework. And of course, you know, we talked to Jared, uh, last time. And so my big question to him was, okay, you know, we had, we had this tsunami of, of agile and it swept over the landscape and now what, you know, was it a net benefit? I mean, Am I looking out across the the landscape of wreckage? What can we what what can we salvage? What can we go forward with? And I thought he made a pretty good sales pitch for Groves as you know, basically uh, the strategy of what Groves is applied to Groves itself, right? Because you're inspecting how has agile adaptation gone, and then you're adapting. Oh, okay, here are the things that, like you said, we kind of dropped the ball. Uh, you know, explicitly spelling out a learning model. And then breaking out the method in a way that, okay, if you're at this point in the model, here are some important things you should keep in mind and so on and so forth. So, uh, so from your, from your perspective, you've got this thing, you've got grows and you're trying to get it out into the world and telling people about it. I mean, what's, what's been the reaction to that? Uh, the reaction has been very, very positive. Um, Almost universally positive, which is kind of funny because with any new venture, uh, with with the novel I wrote this summer, with 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 grows, with with any new book, with you know a, a new song you're playing with your band, whatever, you're always waiting for that person to come up and say that's utter rubbish, it, it's crap, <laughs> wrong, you know, you completely missed the boat. Um, and we had that happen with the pragmatic programmer when when we the first drafts went out for reviewers, we had at least several. <clears throat> Very well-known, highly placed, you know, dyed-in-the-wool, C++, this is engineering, damn it, hardcore, uh, well-known folks say, it was rubbish, bin, bin it, it was, it was trash. You know, this was all soft, woozly stuff, you know, where was the hardcore engineering, um, this would never sell any copies. Um, mercifully, they were utterly wrong. Um, and, you know, there was there was jokes about when the Agile Manifesto came out that this was really pretty soft skill kind of things. Um, we weren't saying use this tool, use this process. Here's a three step you know, plan to do X, Y, Z. That was kind of it was about people and, you know, icky, messy <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and yes, it is. It, it's it's a little icky. It's a little messy. So uh, yeah, I, I I I'm always expecting to hear feedback from Grow saying, you know, why are you doing this? This is stupid. We have Scrum, we have XP, we have Lean, we have these other ideas. We don't need this. You're not filling any particular gap. You're just duplicating the wheel. You know, like like engineers love to do. We don't need this. I have never heard anyone say that. If they're thinking it, they're polite enough not to <laughs> yeah, not to mention it. But instead, they're like. Yeah, you know, we thought something was wrong when, when, um, you know, and then they tell some horror story of their particular failed, not agile, uh, adoption that they thought was agile. And, you know, one of the big problems there is, and there was actually a couple of vendor studies that showed this. If uh, they interviewed, um, 
folks, most many people, some some unacceptably large number of people think that Agile is Scrum. And of that, they do part of Scrum badly. (laughs) And that's all they got. And they think that that's that's the world. Um, And it's really it's not in so many ways. So. One thing I try to point out, and and some folks have been like, "Oh, aren't you aren't you going against you know the the agile canon by introducing grows?" Well, first of all, for something that's supposed to be continually adaptive and changing, you can't have a canon. That's can I swear on this? <laughs> yeah, fire away. We'll bleep it out. <laughs> that is, you know, loose fecal matter from cows. It's <laughs> not. That's not right. The I I people miss this all the time. When you look at the Agile Manifesto, and it's a, an unfortunate um, accident of typesetting, I suppose, of, of formatting of CSS, the very first line on the page does not say, we have discovered the one true way of developing software. <laughs> it says the opposite. It says, oh, you think? It says... It's, and it's written in, we, the, in the present tense. In the and it is still in the present tense. We are uncovering better ways of developing software by doing it and helping others do it. That is as true today as it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 20 years from now. That's the story because ours is such a young discipline. You, you know, you look at medicine or legal or, or architecture; those folks have had thousands of years to get their act together and to get apprenticeship and to get um, accreditation and evaluation. And we can't even really successfully evaluate what makes a good programmer from a poor one, <laughs> you know, not, not readily. Um, you have them do it. And by the time you find out it's, you know, a little late. Um, so we don't have that advantage. We are literally still trying to figure this out. We're uncovering better ways of doing it. So, what I tried to do with the idea of the grows method was focus on the real fundamentals and and try not to get distracted by the obvious distractions that have, have gotten in our way this time. So the four main things I wanted to try to promote was, number one, feedback, that it's all about feedback. And if you look at the four main uh, uh, things on the front of the Agile Manifesto, It's all about feedback. You're working with individuals and you're concerned with their interactions in order to get feedback. You're delivering working software constantly, continuously, in order to get feedback. Customer collaboration, feedback. Responding to change. That's what you do once you got the feedback. You don't just ignore it or shove it in the drawer or say, oops, you know, screwed that one again. Um, So number one in the game is about feedback. Number two... I wanted to elevate the idea of experiments to be a thing because everywhere in Agile, people say, well, yes, you should inspect and adapt. And no one does. It's hard. You know, if you look on the, the principles, look at the very last principles on the page. And, and this is the one that kills me. It says at regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective and tunes and adjusts its behavior accordingly. And I can count on one hand the number of Agile teams 
that actually do that. Well, that's because what it actually reads to, I think, most people is at regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more comfortable, then tunes and adjusts its behavior accordingly, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's very possible. No, Uh, I I mean, that's what I see. I, I mean... It's, it's uncomfortable to tune and adapt. It's uncomfortable to get feedback. It's uncomfortable to get... It's working fine now. Why do we have to change? Well, and it's yeah, even more exactly. uncomfortable to try to go from like good to, to anything Better. above that, right? I mean, and it's something else you... When you were talking just a few minutes ago, something that occurred to me was... I think the reason people like to, to imagine that there is a prescription, that there is one way to do things. Because if you adapt that prescription... And you follow it to the letter and you never deviate. If something goes wrong, well, we followed, we followed the, the recipe. Why, why did I not get cookies? Yeah. Yep. Exactly yeah. right. And that, in fact, that was actually, that was the story of why I decided to, to brand a thing and call it grows in the first place. I, for, for just some random fate of the universe, I had run into, a bunch of people kind of one after the other over the course of several weeks who all had the same story saying, well, we wanted to try this or we wanted to try that, but management wouldn't let us because it wasn't in the Agile canon. Oh, wow. It wasn't in the scrum training that they got. They didn't ever heard of XP. They'd never read the manifesto, but it wasn't in the, you know, the one day scrum course that they took. Therefore, it wasn't canon and they were not allowed to do it. So if nothing else, I was like, okay, great. Then tell them you're doing grows. It's got a TM <laughs> after it. It must be effective. There'll be a book on it. I've, I've got a book. That, you know, Jared and I have been working on that. We'll have a book out. It's got a book. It's got a website. It's got a TM. It's, it's blessed. It's real. Go for it. Um, so if, if nothing else, that gives people a license to experiment and say, yes, this is a real thing. We can do experiments. And there's guidelines on it. You know, we have to take small steps. We want to be inclusive. We want to uh, honor the skill model, you know, all, all these other bits and pieces to it. But it is, you know, fundamentally an excuse to say we don't know the best way to organize people to develop software. We don't know the best architecture to use. We don't know the best programming language. We don't know the best framework. And honest, every every interview and uh, talk I've given in the last two years, I make the same joke. I say, okay, well, it's Wednesday, and it's uh, you know it's eight o'clock local time. That means there've been fourteen new JavaScript frameworks released today. <laughs> and honestly, uh, yes, and I get a laugh every single time because <laughs> it's still Cause true. It's, true. <laughs> it's still true, absolutely. Well, look, this is a terrific conversation. We're enjoying it. Uh, thank you so much for being on. I think. I know I have one really serious question left, and that is, tell us about this science fiction novel you've been writing. <laughs> so the idea is uh, there's this place called Conglomora. And what happened was um, we killed the Earth and fled, as happens in, in, in many stories, uh, you know, Firefly, Wally, whatever. Uh, we escape out to the void, uh, Battlestar Galactica, but... In all these other stories, it occurred to me, folks either kind of form the giant convoy, like in Battlestar, or they've settled another solar system, or you know they found a found a home somewhere else out in the cosmos and have to deal with that. So I thought it'd be a more interesting twist to be, well, we got out there and we didn't find any place. None of these other planets that we, these other exoplanets that we thought were habitable, turned out not to be. 
And yeah, at, that, at this point in time, in real life, it seems like that's the more likely case. It, it, we are so closely tied. And I'd, I'd actually read an interesting thing. I don't remember the author's name, um, but a, a well-known science fiction author who had a lot of you know people out living in hollowed-out asteroids and all this, this kind of, of great stuff, said he actually did a, like a lot of research on the topic and concluded it's not, it's not going to happen. You know, we are so tied to the, the, the fields, the rhythms, the, the radiation level, the, you know, just every little bit of context on this planet that trying to survive anywhere else is really unlikely. So I thought that was an interesting concept and figured, all right, so fine. So everyone, you know, we killed the Earth. Everyone made their own little self-sufficient ships. We headed out, didn't find anything. So what did we do? We stuck all the ships together and called it home. Um, which is partly inspired. I, I live at currently. We moved from a more uh, rural setting into a more dense uh, suburban environment, where you can kind of hand the mustard out your window to your neighbors, <laughs> right? You know that kind of deal. Uh, so it's like, okay, so this is fine. So imagine, if you will, you know, everybody in the left in the world is in their little ships glued together out in the middle of the void, and you're thinking, this is it. This is it for us. This is the end of humanity. And then this guy shows up, this straggler from Dead Earth. And what's he about? And why is he so strange? And then kind of all hell breaks loose. And then it goes from there. That's awesome. So is this out yet or when does it come out? Um, so that's a good question. Um, I was, is this just your, is this just your pet project? You're going to teach <laughs> yourself like your agile. Uh, no, I will. I, it'll, can... it'll absolutely, <laughs> absolutely come out. Um, so interestingly, I was I, I wrote it literally on a whim. I mean, I I woke up one day in in the spring was like I had this this kind of cool idea. It's like I bet I bet I could weave that into a into a story. Um, so I kind of worked on it over the summer. Uh, we were on on vacation. We were actually out a lot this summer. There was relatives' weddings and you know these kinds of things. So I had some time on planes and I was sort of out and about. And got it mostly together enough for um, a rough draft that I sent to people in October, um, j just this last month. And my plan was, I'll just self-publish it, stick it up on Amazon, and, and you know, start the second book. Because of course, it's it's a trilogy, and there's. <laughs> Is it a trilogy of trilogies? And did you start in the middle of the trilogy? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. We are not going backwards. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, so I'm actually deciding right now. It's like there's there's um, there's more I could do with it, or I could I could let it fly as is. I could find a real publisher with it. I could just stick it on Amazon. So I'm kind of ac actually literally as we speak, sort of wrestling with these ideas, trying to figure what it should be when it grows up. Because it's you know again beginner's luck. We had huge beginner's luck with the Pragmatic Programmer book, um, and really just hit it out of the park and didn't know any better. Um, and that was kind of our success. And we were very successful as publishers because we went in and didn't know anything about publishing, but we were programmers. So we built the, the publishing company like you would do a software project. We've got continuous builds. Everything's under version control. You know, my book's in Markdown. It's in Git. It's, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> these are, these are the tools of our trade. Um, so, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure is the short answer. I was, I was going to release it in time for Christmas, but now I have to decide if, if I'm going to grow it into something more or let it fly and, and move on to the next one. That's awesome. So we'll see. 
But you can sign up. I mean, for anyone who's into this kind of stuff, sign up on conglomora2ms.com, uh, and that'll put you on the mailing list. And when I figure out what I'm doing with it, um, it'll be out there. That's it'll awesome. be cool. I do promise that. It will be cool. It sounds really cool. It sounds great. I like science fiction. Yeah. You're going to read this one? I think so. You're going to get on the mailing list? I'll get on the mailing list. Cool. Well, look, <laughs> hey, do you have any contact information in case people want to get with you or you you don't give that out? or? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I, I totally give it out. I've got I got so many spam filters. It's it's a fine thing. Um, so my uh, yeah, here here come the URLs. Um, my homepage, the, the sort of route to find me and whatever I'm involved in, is toolshed.com. T-O-O-L-S-H-E-D. Um, that's my, my homepage that has all, all my stuff on it. Uh, the Pragmatic Bookshelf is at pragprog.com, um, where we've published now, oh, I've lost count, 200, 250 books, wow. something like that. Um, all kinds of topics, Android, JavaScript, Ruby, Rails, Elixir. Um, uh, you know, Elixir and Phoenix has been very popular lately. That's kind of the new hip thing there. Um, then we've got growsmethod.com, which uh, our method, such as it is, is still very much a work in progress. It's still experimental. Uh, somebody asked the other day, well, when are you going to finish it and, and call it you know, certified and done? It's like, never. It's, 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 that's not how it works. This is, you know, you're supposed to tune and adjust periodically. (laughs) You know, it's not going to be done. Um, it's not complete at the moment, but it's, you know, it's a good start and it's all up on the web for free. People could just read it and, you know, use part of it. Um, and what we figure with that is if, if you want, if you're a trainer, if you want to teach people grows, we'll give you training material. We'll let you, you know, license the name and stuff and we'll take a cut of it. Um, but other than that, it's like, you know, feel free, read it, use it, give us feedback. It's yeah. all about feedback. Um, and then finally, the last uh, URL is um, effectiveagileteams.com. Some folks pointed out that the growsmethod.com is great for developers or folks who want to, you know, really dig into low-level practices and see what we recommend and see the growth path and these sorts of things. It's really not suited for somebody willing to write checks, um, it's, it's too much detail. It's too hard to sort of determine the benefit. Uh, and I can, I can absolutely say as, as a business person, as a business owner, you know, my number one tool in the toolbox is let me write you a check and you just go and fix this for me. Right. Um, you know, absolutely. So effective agile is for the folks who write checks. Here's the benefits. Here's what we'll give you. You know, we'll do, we'll do, you know, training. We'll come out. We've got workbooks. We've got this, this stuff. Um, and so it's kind of the, uh, you know, higher level benefit oriented, uh, site. So hopefully that, that covers all of it, but yeah, Andy at toolshed.com. You can follow me on Twitter at pragmatic Andy. Um, and I tweet all kinds of things. I try to do a Zen Monday post just because there's so little Zen on most Mondays. <laughs> Figure that to restore some balance to the universe. <laughs> That's terrific. Well, that's how you get in touch with Andy. Andy, it is so nice uh, spending some time with you and getting to know you a little bit. Thank you so much for all the stories, for adding the context around some of these things that we've followed, some of us for our whole or the large majority of our career. Pretty much the whole time. Um, and this this has been terrific. We'd love to maybe sometime in, in, in a while, I don't know, next year or sometime, have you back on if you're open to it. Um, oh, I'd this, love to. Yeah, this is terrific. And um, I hope I hope you have a really good year this year in 2017. 
Well, thank you much. And and next time I'm in town, I'll be sure to look you guys up. Absolutely. Let's get a cup of coffee or beer or something. Let's do that. Or both. Or both. Yeah. <laughs> oh, at the same time. Is there a drink for that? I, we like, can make one. <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right. Well, you've been listening to Reflection as a Service. I'm Paul Merrill. I'm James Jeffers. You can find us on Twitter, uh, Reflection AAS on Twitter. You can find me at D. Paul Merrill on Twitter. James is at JD Jeffers. Uh, and we're all available. I'm available through my company, BeauftFairmont.com. And, and, uh, and you can find James lots of different ways. So thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to uh, the next episode. Make sure to check us out on iTunes and uh, Google Play and write reviews and all that good stuff. SoundCloud. We need all the fandom, SoundCloud. We need all of that to keep producing this wonderful, high-quality show. Thank you so much.